So you have cats? Is that what I... Yeah, two. What Kristen, is their name? Kristen came with one. His name is Smokey. She's had him for, I want to say like 13, 14 years. Mm-hmm. So he's the old man. And then last year, September twenty or September 5th, mm-hmm. we got our little girl, Ray. Oh, nice. Yeah. Smokey or, and Ray. I take it back. We got her... We got her in like January. She was born on September 5th. Oh, okay. And so when we got her, she was like five months old or so. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we've, we're recording. Okay. So welcome. Welcome to the Untitled Friendship Project. My name is Joe, and I'm sitting here with my friend, Mike. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, we just ate a very nice meal that Mike made for us. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Um... The potatoes were really good, and I had, like, a really late lunch, so I wasn't, like, hungry, hungry, but it was definitely, like, I'm in a really good place right now, so (laughs) that's really good. So, welcome. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on the show, finally. I am, too, man. Um, It's been, it's, as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, I've definitely had, like, a long journey between episodes, and it's nice to be in a space where there's consistency and it's becoming a part of things that I do. So, um, I know that very early on, I, I really wanted to get you on the show too. And I, and now that we're back up and running, we're here we are. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for waiting. Yeah. My (laughs) pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, um, usually like we go, like to talk about like origin stories. So, you know, where, uh, tell me a little bit about where you, where you, where you from, where you grew up. I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii in a, big ugly pink hospital on the side of a gorgeous green hill called triple memorial okay um my father was in the navy mm-hmm. and my mother was from hawaii and there's this whole crazy tumultuous story around their love story which is interesting um my mother was married before and i have three siblings from that initial marriage um and my father was her husband's best friend then they got a divorce my father was there my mom and my dad became very good friends and eventually fell in love and married um and then me (laughs) hi (laughs) um so from hawaii my father was stationed in italy um and we lived in italy for like two years two and a half years moved to san diego when i was five and this is basically where i've called home ever since i moved away a couple times lived in new york for a little while lived Mm -hmm. in seattle for a little while but all roads lead to the doghouse. Yeah. And here I am again. Is your mom native Hawaiian? She is. She's Puerto Rican Portuguese, but she's native in that she's from the Big Island. She was born there and raised yeah. there. And if you're Portuguese, you're pretty much Hawaiian anyway, right? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> pretty much. Uh, well, they have the best sausage. I Dang, mean, yeah. I, as someone, you know, Guam, we have a very, people from Guam have a very interesting relationship with the native Hawaiians as well. Uh, we consume a lot of the culture that they make. Mm-hmm. So growing up, like all of my... All the songs that I knew were like Hawaiian reggae artists. You know, that's that becomes the sound of my childhood. Mm-hmm. So every time I walk into a place where it's like Leilani's in in PB or you know someplace where they're playing that music, I'm instantly transported back to my childhood. Oh wow! But um, there's a there's an interesting relationship in the sense that um, in absence of like a very defined culture that makes its own culture, we. Um, People who grew up on Guam or who are native, you know, the native Guamanian, the native Chamorro people, they latch on to Hawaiian culture because it's now um, normalized or it's become a little bit more mainstream. And so they start to latch on to that. 
And so there's a, there's a little bit of a rift with like, you know, people who are want to, you want to support your island brothers and sisters, <laughs> but you also want to be like, well, we have our own stuff too. Like, sure. you know, that's not, that's not all Hawaiian stuff. Like let's, let's kind of keep it here. So I, growing up, my, one of my best friends was, his family was from Guam. Oh, and so cool. I, every year went to St. Jude, oh. the St. Jude festival and yes. I ate, I ate a lot of like the dishes from Guam. Mm-hmm. It it branched over into Filipino yeah. quite a bit. You very, know? very uh, much. Ponset, uh, pon, uh, Pondasal, yeah. Lumpia, those types of things. But there again, that all, all those dishes I just named were very much a part of my upbringing being from yeah. Hawaii. So mm-hmm. you're right. There is this really interesting link. Well, I was, I was watching mm-hmm. um, Anthony Bourdain's show on CNN, okay. uh, The Parts Unknown. He went to... He did a show in Hawaii. He's he's done other shows in his like his other shows that he's done on Travel Channel and stuff. But he did a show where he went to Hawaii and he was talking to um, Native Hawaiian uh, chefs, and they were talking about how like it is such a hodgepodge of stuff. When you're talking about like Native Hawaiian cuisine, mm-hmm. it is everything from. Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, <laughs> all of that influence in there. Yeah. And then you have like the huge like American GI influence. Like, you know, when you're talking about spam, there was this dish that he had called taco rice. Yeah. Um, which yeah. I didn't know was a thing. And then apparently like that's a really kind of like authentic. Yeah. Authentic. Did you have taco rice? Oh, yeah. And um, it's interesting. Whenever we go back to Hawaii, it's not so much now, which was a little disappointing. The last time I went back... So much of Hawaii has changed, even even so that the accent we're all familiar with is gone. In mm-hmm. in the young people that were born and raised on the island, that accent is gone. Really, like it, that, like that native Hawaiian, like that pigeon accent, gone. Really, yeah. It's it it. You had to find someone who spoke like that, or if you're on like the Big Island, mm-hmm. people that are because the Big Island isn't so touristy. That's really communities and. Mm-hmm. Um, Kona, Kona side of the Big Island, that's more of your, your touristy area because that's where the airport is. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much like Waikiki in that it's sunny there a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get to Hilo side and that's that's business. You know, that's you're there to visit family. You're not really there to... Or you're on your way to hike to go see the lava, mm-hmm. which you can't get to by car anymore. You have to hike to get there. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it was it was crazy. We went over to Honolulu, and my girlfriend at the time, she was with us. It was my mom, my dad, Jacob, mm-hmm. uh, my girlfriend at the time, and I. And we went to the Big Island first, and then while we were there, I was like, come on, let's get an island hopper. I want to show you where I was born and everything. And so when we went over to Honolulu, um, we stayed in Navy housing uh, in uh, Pearl Harbor uh-huh, area. Uh-huh. And it broke my heart because that night we rented a car and I drove her into Waikiki just to kind of take her around. And that classic, beautiful view of Waikiki is you're driving the Leaky Highway around mm-hmm. the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like Waikiki in the foreground and Diamond Head in the distance. Yep. It's gone. It looks like downtown LA now. There's oh. all these high-rise buildings and it's just like, oh my gosh, what happened to my home? Yeah. Um, but the thing is, it's like the people are still warm, and and mm-hmm. when you when you get to the like the old timers, they're still very like kind and generous and welcoming. So when was the last time you went back? Uh, probably like nine, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, yeah, about then, because my dad's been gone about eight, 
and so it was like mm-hmm. just a couple of years prior to that. It's no, wild. You, <laughs> and you said that your dad was in the Navy, right? He retired. He was in the Navy, yeah. He retired after thirty-one years. Was he enlisted? Yeah. So he was a chief, master chief, master chief. mate. Okay. Nine. He went as high as you can go as enlisted. And um, we actually, we were Jacob and I were just talking about this the other day. Um, they wanted him to actually go higher. They want, and he kept saying no, no. He just he wasn't interested in being an officer. He he mm-hmm. liked being a working man. He he enjoyed being in the navy, and he liked being a working man. So he retired from the navy, and then he went to work for the port of San Diego for an additional thirteen years. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so you so it's always fun when I. I always love when I meet someone who has Navy roots or military roots in general, Mm -hmm. because I can instantly say where I'm from and they know exactly, they have some connection to it, whether or not they know exactly where that is because they were lived there and their parents were stationed there or they were stationed there or, you know, a buddy or something like that. Like it's, it's, it's nice to live in a place that, um, I've called home for so long, but when I meet people, I can say, oh, where you ever stationed here? That's where I'm from. And then they have the connection. I actually met someone who, um, one of my friends in high school I met when we had just moved here and her sister was actually born on Guam when her dad was in the Navy. And then I met a complete stranger uh, a few years ago at a party of all things. And it was, um, it was actually, it was the V-Day after party after the cast of all the female military cast. Oh, okay. And one of the, one of the women in the show, I was telling her where I was from and she like lifts up her shirt and shows me this tattoo and she's like, I get a tattoo every, every place that I've been stationed and I have one from Guam and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like that's like, it was like a huge like symbol of our culture. I'm like, that's that's awesome. Like if you're going to get anything, you got the right thing. So yeah. that was really, it's always nice when to have that kind of touchstone. So you went to, so when, when you were in, when you were in New York, I didn't know you were in New York and Seattle. What were you doing there? Or um, if I may ask. <laughs> 94 through 90, let's see, January 94 to September of 95. I lived in Jamaica, Queens. Um, I was here in San Diego. See, this is where we're getting into the, the cult part I was talking about. Oh, nice. Um, Which like, we're definitely going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I won't mention the name of the place so that they don't get upset that I called it a cult. But I, um, <laughs> I, was a, I, I, I went to free meditation classes at this place, this local place. And after a while, I started to kind of ask them about what they were about. And during that time, I was going through a pretty intensive uh, search for spirituality. I was brought up Catholic, and Mm -hmm. for some reason at 19, um, this this veil of disillusionment fell. And I don't really know, I can't really pinpoint it. It wasn't like this event happened and it made me go, ah, screw this. I just, um, I, I learned to play guitar. By, I know I'm jumping around, but it all ties in. Oh yeah, <laughs> I jump, learned, jump. <laughs> I learned to jump. play guitar. By... The listeners, they're used to it by now. So jump, jump all over. <clears throat> Excuse me. I bought a guitar for nine dollars from a guy I worked with at Vons, and I taught myself how to play. And I got to a point where I could, I couldn't read music, but I could, you know, the chords were above. I, I could play along. And at the time, I was singing in a folk group for my church, the church I went to as I grew up, and the woman who ran the group agreed to like teach me 
how to play the song. So it was awesome. I was getting like free guitar lessons and I was learning how to play all these songs. And at the time I was into it, man. I, I, I was a full believer. I, I loved it. I loved, I loved God. It was all exciting, you know, and all my friends were, were big time into Jesus. And I used to go to these, um, retreat weekends and hang out with people and do talks. And I ended up becoming a part of the team and was a leader and gave talks and it was all fun. But as I look back now, I realize it was ultimately just a craving for acceptance and a sense of belonging. And this felt like home. And I met one of my dearest, dearest friends who to this day is very much like a brother to me uh, on a retreat um, through through the church. But then for some reason at that time, I, I just became, I started to lose interest and kind of lose faith a little bit. And I remember standing on, um, I don't, I forget what the accurate term is, but let's say the stage (laughs) during, during the service altar or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, it wasn't quite the altar. It was off to the side. Sanctuary. There you go. Um, and I looked out at the audience. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The people. Yeah. And, um, there were like, it was filled with people I knew obviously, cause I had grown up in that church, but it was like all the popular people and the people who donated a lot of money sat up front and the people who weren't that popular and were poor sat towards the back. Like my mom was always at the back, you know? And, mm-hmm. and there, it, it just like all the reality of the fact that these people are human, that they sit in this building and they have this like holy, you know, yeah. this vibe about them that, oh, we're, we're, we're in love with God and we should be good. Yeah. And there's all these lessons about be kind to each other, love one another, don't judge and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then the minute they leave the church, as they're leaving the parking lot, they're screaming at somebody for cutting them off, you know? Yeah. And the hypocrisy of it just came crashing down. And I was 19. I didn't really understand what I had just realized, but I knew something had happened. And so I began to search and I, I was um, exposed to Eastern philosophy through... Uh, a series of books and that started me on a journey that became somewhat of an obsession where I got I read everything I get my hands on both both Eastern and Western I, I read a lot of different philosophies from the Western side um, uh, Greek Roman all you know yeah, and yeah, anything yeah. recent um, anything I could get my hands on or anything that anybody suggested to me I read and it, it I couldn't find a place to land that I was willing to commit to, but I knew that I was leaning towards more Eastern, especially um, Buddhist philosophies. Like mm-hmm. I just the, the those um, the little like tales that they have in Eastern philosophy, those myths. Mm-hmm. I love them so much. Those little like short stories that they that that tell a lesson. You know, I, I love that. And they spoke to me. There were things I could understand, even though I couldn't, I, I didn't have the emotional maturity to incorporate them into my day-to-day life. I knew they were real and I knew they were true. Um, so I, I took this meditation class, full circle. Yeah. Um, and it felt good. I, I was really enjoying meditating. I I was enjoying not not judging myself for mm-hmm. not being able to silence my mind, but realize I don't have to. I just need to sit there. And, and if my mind does wander, to be aware and bring it back and try to be present, but it's okay. You're, you're not really going to turn it off completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and this meditation class was in San Diego. This yes. is still here. Okay. Yes. And I think they're still offered to this day. Okay. 
So they this um, organization that offered this these classes had a spiritual figurehead, uh, a guru, mm-hmm. and um, I inquired about possibly becoming a part of the group. They took my picture and had me fill out an application, and they sent it to this guru who lived in New York, where he meditated on it and um, connected with the Supreme, also known as God, and saw into my soul to see whether or not I was ready to be a part of this spiritual group, right? So I sent in my application, took my picture and everything, and then I left to go on a tour of the, of the West Coast, where I was playing Huckleberry Finn in a like children's theater okay. version of Tom Sawyer. Okay, right? totally fun. Uh, the The cast was also the crew, and we had like a van that carried everybody, and a truck that had like our set and our costumes mm-hmm. and everything. How old were you at the time? Uh, I think I was like. Oh, you said nineteen, so like no. This was this was years later. So oh, okay, okay. I think I was maybe like twenty two. Okay. Cool. Um, so you're we, on the tour. We went all the way up to Victoria. No, sorry, this tour. We went to Bellingham, Washington, and then all the way back down. Um, we were in Vegas. We had gone all the way up, and we're on our way down. We were in Vegas, on our way back to San Diego. When I got a letter, I got a card. So some my mom had sent forwarded my mail to me in Vegas, and the card I, I received the card that that day, telling me I had been accepted. To this group, to this, mm-hmm. um, you know, the guru looked into my soul and said, okay. Yeah. He um, consulted with Supreme. Yeah, Supreme yeah. was like, good for you. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, he can come in. Yeah. Um, so when I came back, I couldn't wait to get started. And one of the things they have you do is, is they have a series of businesses with his, this guy's name. And they're known as Divine Enterprises. They have, um, there's a restaurant in town. There's like a yoga place. And there's a bunch of different places that are run by uh, disciples yes students <laughs> students of, of this guy okay and so I worked at the restaurant I was a cook I started as a dishwasher and I worked my way up to cook and we got paid in cash and we got paid like below minimum wage but we did it you know and we worked mm-hmm. hard we worked very very hard and um, what was, why did I start telling? Oh, New York. Yes. So while I was, everyone knew that I was involved in theater because I had just gone on this tour and, you know, and I had told them like, here's my stuff, but I'm going on tour. So I won't be back for like, you know, two months or so. So while I was there, they got a call from New York saying, Hey, do you have anyone there that's like in theater, an actor? Because we're, we're doing the show off Broadway and we need an actor. And so mm-hmm. the guy that ran the center here told them about me they reached out to me sent me a script had me videotape my audition mail it back to them because this is before internet yeah of course (laughs) um and they they hired me okay so they flew me out to new york and i arrived in new york in january of 1994 which was the coldest winter new york had experienced in something like 50 years so i show up to new york from Southern California, I don't know what warm clothes are, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that means. Warm clothes are shorts and a t-shirt that yeah. you wear when it's warm outside. Yeah, yeah. So I showed up there, and it was like a blizzard, and I was freezing. So I get there, thinking they have a place for me to to stay and all this kind of stuff. They don't. They oh, they God. they drive me from JFK to Jamaica Queens. The guy pulls into his the driveway of his house. 
and basically tells me, uh, walk that way. So I'm wandering, <laughs> I'm wandering the streets of Jamaica, Queens with no idea, don't know anybody. Oh my God. Um, nowhere to stay. Don't know. I, and you know, there were no cell phones. If there were cell phones, I didn't have one. Yeah. Um, and I, I was walking past and it was pretty late. I think I got there at about 10 o'clock. So that by the time we actually got to Queens, it was 10 45, 11, you know, and I'm walking around Queens and I see this light on mm-hmm. and it happens to be, um, a Hindu temple. And so I have my suitcase and my backpack and my like North face bag that I wore all mm-hmm. the time. And I walk in there and I was just like, I'm, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I mean, no disrespect. I am just, I'm from San Diego. I just arrived. I thought I had a place to live and I don't. Can I please just like sit in the temple and meditate uh, just to warm up and then I'll be on my way. I promise I won't cause any problems at all. And they, it looked like they were about ready to close, but they agreed. They let me. And so I just went and I sat in the temple and I just over and over again in my head, I said, gratitude, 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 because it was warm. It was so warm in there. So after I was in there about maybe 20 minutes, the dude that ran the place came in and sat next to me and we got to talking and he's like, so you, where'd you come from? And you know, just the usual stuff. Really, really sweet guy. One of those people that you can tell upon meeting them is just all heart, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you can see in his eyes and everything. Um, this, I'm starting to feel, get emotional because. <sighs> There's just no, like you can look in their mm-hmm. eyes and you can, you can tell that they're, that you are seeing a genuine person. Yeah. That there's this. There's a warmth there. There's no. There's no malice. There's no yeah. ulterior motives. But also, given my circumstances, the mm-hmm. fact that what hap- what I'm about to tell you happened to me happened to me. Mm-hmm. I, I will take that to my grave as something that I will forever uh, exercise gratitude for. Um, so we got to talking, and he then he told me that there was they had a basement room that they don't use. And that I was welcome to stay there for as long as I needed until I found housing. Um, So he takes me down. I said, yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I go downstairs and it's this giant room that's got like two basketball hoops hanging on the end with then carpet on the floor. And um, there was not, I didn't have, because I thought I was going to have a room. So I didn't have a sleeping bag. I didn't have anything to sleep on. Yeah. I found like. Um, like a three-inch foam pad that I put on the floor uh, that, and to lay on. I filled um, a sweatshirt with a bunch of my clothes as a pillow, and then I found a rug in the corner, and I used that as a blanket. And that's where I lived for two weeks. And oh, my I just, gosh. And I would go up if I happened to be there when because they had – like it wasn't just a temple where they would have their services. And let me tell you, their services were rocking. Like they were loud drums. That was a celebration going on up there. But they also had like meal – like like any church where they yeah. had like a kitchen and stuff. There was like fellowship. People yeah. would come in. And, yeah. So if I was around and I saw that something was going on, I would offer to help wash dishes. I would take out the trash. Anything I could do because they weren't taking money from me. Mm-hmm. Anything I could do to help out, I, I yeah. did it. Um, while also like going to rehearsals and you know riding the subway in downtown um, to this awesome theater in the village called the Waverly Place Theater. Okay. And um, – that was my life for two weeks was basically living in the basement of a Hindu temple and heading into, into Manhattan to rehearse 
uh, for an off Broadway sh- show for the show, and then and then occasionally doing events with this group because mm-hmm. the the guru lived there, so we would spend our mornings sitting at a tennis court just watching him sit there and eat and drink, and he would sit in the same chair with this blanket over his lap. Occasionally, he would get up and play a game of tennis with someone or he'd go around the corner to the place we couldn't see and he would run like it was just it was so at the time you're just like oh it's him he's right there yes he he saw something in my picture yeah um i i you know and i will admit wholeheartedly when i look back that it was an insecurity thing i i felt so out of place and so not really connected with anybody that to have this sort of spiritual person tell me that I was, out of all humanity, I was special to be a part of this group. I had been chosen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, handpicked mm-hmm. to be a part of this group. I bought into it, man. I, I felt it. I felt so special. And then to like, nobody got to go to his house unless you were there for, like in, in the, the organization for years and years. I'd been in the organization for three months and I'm sitting in the dude's living room and he's sitting right there and he's talking to me personally because I'm in this show. Um, and it was like, I felt like a star. I felt like a superstar and it totally fed my ego, my fragile, insecure ego. I admit it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so what brought you out of the temple? Like you're there for two weeks, right? The the director had a, an extra room that while, because two times a year, they would have these events for the group for this organization that were called celebrations. One, one group of celebrations were for his mother's birthday who had since passed. Mm -hmm. The other was for his birthday. So two times a year, disciples from all around the globe would flock to New York. So you'd see the sea of people wearing white wandering around Jamaica Queens, which if you think about how that sounds, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) right. Um, after having gone to after having gone to New York for the first time in January, and the super shuttle driver to avoid uh, rush hour traffic drove through Jamaica Queens. Mm-hmm. The the thought of that is it's a very very interesting <laughs> interesting visual. Don't get me wrong, I definitely have a, a deep tenderness for Jamaica Queens. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like I live there. I, and it's funny, we were watching a movie the other day, and I was like, oh my god, that's my hood, I knew that. Like, that's, you know, they, there was a clip of, of Queens, and it was these places that I remember being, and, and I just, I don't know, it's, it, was, it, was, um, it was a very fun time, and I, I, I'm grateful that at that time in my life, I had a lifestyle that allowed me to just pick up and be this adventurer, to just like, sure, I'll fly across the country and go sleep in a Hindu temple, you know? Yeah, um, I'll be in your show. Uh, yeah. So then the following year, I I came back to San Diego. I was there for like eight months, nine months. I came back to San Diego for a little while. And then I flew right back because they did another show. It was a play about the Buddha. Okay. It it was called Siddhartha Becomes the Buddha. And this this guru actually wrote it. And they cast me as Siddhartha slash the Buddha. Very cool. Um, And we were in a different theater this time. This time it was a theater in Soho that was just down the street from the Ghostbusters firehouse. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, so if you if you see the movie from this top, you know, there's there's the firehouse and then the building right next to it is the theater that we were in. It was called the One Dream Theater, which I love that name for a theater. Uh black box style. Um 
and it was it was awesome. So so we we worked on that show, and that show actually ended up getting picked up for a two and a half month tour of Europe. So we took it from New York to Chicago, to Seattle, to Victoria, Canada, Ottawa, Canada, and then back to New York and headed over to uh, Frankfurt, where we did like seven different countries in two and a half months. Wow. And um, um, one of the things I should say, though, is that the, the group is split up, like no sex, no drugs, no rock and roll. Men can't hang out with women unless you're at like a service or something. And mm-hmm. then like men sit on one side, women sit on the other. There's just like, um, okay. none of that, none of the fun stuff is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I would be in New York and I'd be, you know, following all the rules. I'd come back to San Diego, hang out with my friends, get, you know. Yeah, because you're, I mean, you're early 20s. Yeah, like... yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, two and a half months in Europe, come back to New York for a little while. Um, I get the okay to move to Seattle to go to work at a divine enterprise in Seattle and basically leave my San Diego family mm-hmm. of you know disciples and go to Seattle and be with those. The day I arrived in San Diego, I get a call telling me I'd been kicked out of the organization and there was no reason... I was not given a reason as to why. Vital reasons is what they said. And vital means like sex or mm-hmm. or uh, drugs or rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. You know, but nobody told me. Um, I'd heard several different stories from people. Uh, one story was that I had gotten married when I hadn't been in a relationship for like five years at that point. Uh, one was that I had spoken to a woman at the tennis court for too long and another disciple complained about it. Um Oh wow! Yeah, there were like four or five different versions of why that I got. That seems pretty severe for, dude. dude. Maybe giving directions to some lady on the street or yeah. something. No, it was another disciple. Oh, another disciple. Okay, and, and yeah, and and so, I, I I don't know. I may never know what the truth is, mm-hmm. but um, I I came back. I was in San Diego now, and everything that I had embraced in my life for like three years was gone from me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I was planning on moving my life to Seattle. Now I'm like stuck in San Diego. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do for a job because I had lost my job too. Um, I ended up getting a call from a friend about a job at the Old Globe Theater working in the box office. Um, This was end of September 1995. I walk into the box office to interview for the job and I see one of my best friends from high school sitting across the room from me. And as I walk in, he just stands up and spreads his arms and comes over and gives me this big, big hug. And he's still very, very dear to me to this day. He's the one that basically transitioned me back into real life because I I talked to him about my time in that group and about like how I felt lost. It was, it, I, I used to call it, I was, uh, my expulsion from Eden mm-hmm. that I didn't now, like now what, yeah, now yeah, what yeah. do I do? Do I, do I still continue to believe in this dude and follow all these teachings, even though I'm no longer in the organization? Do I go back to being a regular person? Um, and it was during that time I mentioned earlier being a vegetarian. Yeah. yeah. It was during that time that I was in the organization oh, that I was a vegetarian. Okay. okay. Um, so, uh, so connect, reconnecting with him was the universe's way of saying you're going to be just fine because he yeah. he never he never passed judgment. He never made me feel like I had done something stupid. He was genuinely curious. Like he would ask me questions like so what now? And 
basically like just guided me back to the land of the living. And I ended up moving to Seattle anyway. I got accepted to the Art Institute. Okay. And moved up there and uh, I loved it. In 1996, January 1996, moved up to Seattle. Uh, by the end of 1996, I was back in San Diego. <laughs> and so that's it. Wow. That's that's a freaking story. <laughs> and you were worried that you were not going to be interesting. I was worried. It's <laughs> I, I've, I've noticed a pattern. The people who are generally worried that they're not going to have anything to talk about, they're usually the ones who have some of the most interesting stories. Oh, I do have one cool story to tell you, too. Oh. About the temple. Okay, go for it. My, my last day there when I was moving, by packing up all my stuff and moving uh, to the guy's house. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the Hindu temple. Yes, okay. in, in Queens. I, um, I walked around and, of course, said goodbye to everybody, gave everybody hugs. And then I took time to just sit in the temple. And I don't know if you've ever been in a Hindu temple. I have not. Their altar has like 30 gods, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a, a, like a... It's it's like opening up the cover of one of those Crayola boxes, <laughs> and Seriously, they're all and, there. Because and, and there's just as many colors on that altar, you know, a yeah. lot of blue. But there's mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of different gods, and um, I learned about most of them. But there's like so many. I was like, wait, now what was that one again? Um, and some of them are like avatars of other people. Yes, right? okay. yes. Um, my favorite by far is Ganesh. Ganesh mm-hmm. is the coolest i'd like to sit down and have a beer with ganesh i I like ganesh he i'm a fan okay um but i sat in the temple and i just again gratitude 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 it's just over and over again for a half hour um maybe longer and then i left and as i walked out of the temple down the stairs and on the sidewalk i found a 20 dollar bill oh wow (laughs) So it was that like, was there you go. It was like it was like sending me off with yeah. some spending money. Like, it was like Ganesh was like, here yeah. you go. Here you I'll go. see you. I'll see yeah. you later. Yeah, I got my eye on you, boy. <laughs> so yeah, I um, I'm That's very awesome. very grateful for that. Um, at the time, it was hard. I'm not gonna lie. I was really homesick and I was sad a lot, mm-hmm. and I just felt like alone because I was in this giant room uh, and I in a place that I knew no one. Mm-hmm, I didn't have mm-hmm. any friends. I didn't have. You know, like everyone that was there was someone I had just met. Mm-hmm. And so it was hard. I called home a lot. I was really homesick. And mm-hmm. I called my friends. I called my, um, you know, people that I, that were in my life at that time. But even that felt kind of hollow. Because as I look back now, I realize those were the, that was the transitioning out of those friendships. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're people I'm still like connected to on Facebook and stuff, but they're not friends like they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, that served a purpose. Yeah. Like the, the, the phrase that I like, or the saying that I really like is, um, people come into your life for a reason, season and for life forever. And the, um, you you know, one in the same, sometimes the reason the season come can, can combine together. But I, I've definitely been feeling that lately. Like you can, you can just feel it's an, I, for me, it's always like an uneasy feeling when you have, when you know that like you're transitioning out of a friendship or, or you, the nature of this friendship. And then you try, you're trying to like capture in your mind when was the last time that it was not when, when, when were you just like in it? And then at what point did it go through? Um, I've had a lot of like really close, uh, 
really close friends. Like we get close. It's very, in, the, t- the friendship is very intense and strong. And then something happens where someone gets an opportunity to move away or something like that. Or, you know, mm-hmm. there's, they have, they're following their path. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, you know, it's hard to, the feelings of like, oh, you're leaving me. Like, <laughs> uh, oh, I'm, I'm being left behind. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm here with Kurt Cameron. I'm just getting left behind. <laughs> I, I had to, I had to, I had to, uh, and, but like at the same time, like you, you know, that the it's for me, it's always like the next phase is going to be different. It's just a matter of how are we going to adapt how we are, or sure. are we just going to let it be? And what we had is what we had. Sure. Um, going through that, going, going through that very thing a few times in the last like two or three years has been, has been really interesting, but um, it's, it's, it's all, it's also exciting because you, you see how, if you really, if, if there's genuinely this like connection where you know that you're going to be, um, you're still going to have each other in his life. It's just a matter of how to make that work. Right. Well, and some people you just love, Yeah. you know, and, and even though you might not see them very often or you don't really talk to them very often, they have real estate in your heart. Yes. You know, and so the times you do see them, it's as if no time has passed. Um, and you're just grateful for that time to get to spend together. Um, it's it, it's interesting because I, I had Jacob when I was 27. And at that time, especially my friends, I was one of the only people that had a, a kid. And um, I used to bring him with me to parties because my friends were always like, yeah, bring him. And he was such a cool kid. Everybody loved him. Um, But I was the only one. And now a lot of my friends are having kids. And so they're all getting to like raise their kids together. And it's just like, oh, you lucky bastard. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like I wish I had friends that had kids so that he could have had friends I'd be like oh have your let your kid spend the night or let him spend the night you know yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. they raise together learn together that kind of thing and I I didn't have that I had to make all my mistakes on my own yeah you had to you had to mm-hmm. um you had to create that community for yourself sure. but again I wouldn't but I wouldn't do anything differently I, I love him very much and I love the man he's become mm-hmm. and if the way the thing went the way the journey went is yeah. the way it had to go, then I'm cool with that. So yeah, I, I mentioned that we, I, I want to bring up mending because that's how oh, we yeah. got to, we, that's how we got to really connect and, and be with each other. But one, one thing mm-hmm. that I learned um, during the mending process is uh, the piece that you wrote regarding, re, the piece that you wrote regarding your son. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've been actually, uh, I, it's coming into my head and it's really cool because I, we've had, I was, before we talked, we were talking about, um, how many people on the podcast have, have had kids or have kids and, um, but like, I really wanted to ask you, um, and, and by no means, you know, you feel free to feel free to let me know, um, if you feel uncomfortable or whatever, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about like fatherhood, uh, because, when I think about, because like when I think about me, I I like can't even fathom the idea of like being someone's father at this point in like in this point in my life, like mm-hmm. I can barely I can barely think about the idea of like maybe wanting to get a dog or like a, a pet, you know? Like I can't, <laughs> sure. like, I can't like to be responsible for sure. another human being, um, like scares the bejesus out of me, and I I know like I have a friend who he feels a very real and deep desire to 
be a dad, to be a father, to, Mm -hmm. to father children and father children in like the, you know, the biological perspective, but also like to be, to experience that like fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask a little bit about your fatherhood journey. Um, if I could, if you like, sure. I am, I'm one of those rare birds, odd birds, I guess that I knew I wanted to be a dad when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Like I just, the idea of being a father always, always appealed to me. I don't know why I, um, I didn't have the closest relationship with my dad, but I, I definitely admired and respected him and for the man he was Mm -hmm. and very much wanted to be that kind of man. When I grew up, we, we didn't, I don't know if it was because of his upbringing or being in the Navy or, you know, his own version of PTSD. He did two tours in Vietnam and a oh bunch of crazy stuff happened that he wouldn't talk about. Yeah. That just, these stories that just died with him. Mm-hmm. But um, we n- never really connected. He was he was gone for most of my life because he was at sea. And then when he came back, he was still kind of gone. I wasn't into sports. He he would watch football, baseball, whatever, golf, you know. I wasn't into it. I was reading books and watching Star Wars and playing with my figures and I was the imaginative, you know, singing along to the radio, listening to that horrible group the Beatles, them, you know. <laughs> but my dad did love music, and that was one of the things we could connect with was music. Um and and like I said, he was a good man and he provided an awesome life for me. He was never he wasn't a horrible dad. We just didn't really have the connection, yeah. you know. And um so I don't know why I felt very strongly about being a father. Um I know that I really thought about it when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but I wasn't ang- don't get me wrong, I wasn't anxious to be a dad in high school. Yeah. I just knew that someday I hoped to be a dad. Um, so when I came home from work one day and, uh, she was like, guess what? I'm pregnant. I was, I was thrilled. I mean, we both were like, okay, well, we need to have a conversation about it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think we all, all, we both also knew there was no conversation to be had. We were absolutely going to have this kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, it was... We did all the classes. We read all the books. We did everything we could to prepare. Yeah. And none of that prepares you. (laughs) (laughs) None of that actually prepares you for for what it's really like. Um, The day that he was born, he, um, his mother, uh, her, his head was too big to pass through. Mm -hmm. She was too small and they were worried that he was going to get stuck, Mm -hmm. which as an imaginative person, created very horrible images in my head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, they had to do a C-section. Uh-huh. They let me come in and I was standing there holding her hand while they're cutting her open. We were married at the mm-hmm. time. So while they're cutting my wife's stomach open, did, did, did they know? Well, no, they, they, you, it was planned to be a natural birth. Yes. Okay. And, but she had been in labor for so long. And then as they started to like see him in there and, and see her and just how much room she actually had to give, like, um, I think it was her, uh, it, it was her, like her bone, the, the bone or whatever that, that I, I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Um, but the, the funny thing is, is I'm sitting there and I'm holding her hand and I'm watching them 
as they're 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 using a cauterizing scalpel so that it doesn't bleed so much. So as they're cutting her, it's cauterizing, and they're talking about this other procedure, and they're so like flippant and and just like oh yeah, like like cutting bacon or you know like, yeah, they're just like, it happens the miracle yeah. of life that happens every day. But yeah. me- meanwhile, I'm standing there freaking out because they're cutting my wife's stomach open and I'm looking down at her and I'm holding her hand like are you okay and she's like yeah I'm fine because she's doped out of her mind yeah and then all of a sudden they reach in and they pull this this thing out and his head looked huge and I just thought oh my god what is that (laughs) you know what I mean (laughs) and they they took him out and they took him over to the corner um and then they asked me if I wanted to cut the cord so I walked over and I cut the cord and I remember thinking I, I didn't expect it to feel like that mm-hmm. when I cut it, you know? Yeah. And then um, I went back over and I sat by there her. There should be like, more behind yeah. it. Like, but it. It was really gristly. Oh. And I, I expected it to kind of just, I don't know what I expected, but yeah. what I actually got, I didn't expect. And so then I went back and I sat at a chair by her and um, they came over and they handed him to me and I immediately started crying and I was like, hey, you... I'm pretty fucking happy to meet you, you know? And uh, then I held her, him up for her and um, was immediately terrified because I realized for the first time in my life that I had something to lose. Up until that point, it had been all about me. Even though I was in a relationship with someone and even though we were married, I didn't know what that meant. I, I The concept of commitment was like... You know, yeah. I was the kind of person who could just pick up and fly to New York yeah. to be in an off-Broadway show. Now all of a sudden, that was done. You know, my life was changed. You held and, your, you were holding your world in your hands. Yeah, at that point. and um, for the first, like I said, for the first time in my life, I had something to lose. And um, he had a little bit of jaundice, so they had to keep okay. him in the hospital. For a few days, and then she, because of the C-section, they had to keep her for a couple of days as well. So we, uh, when she finally got to come home, we had like one last night of him being in the hospital, cared for by nurses, and we were home. And so it was, it was weird because it was like, I've got a kid, but I'm not really responsible for it because the nurses keep coming in and yeah, you know, doing all the stuff and yeah. and you know, and so it's like, oh, I, okay. Then all of a sudden they're like, all right, here you go, and we brought him home. And I remember that night bringing him home. I I never knew there was that level of quiet. Like the apartment, it, it, it's, it felt like the entire outside world had ceased to make noise. And the only noise that existed was like the ambient noise of our little apartment. I was so scared because I didn't know what the hell. I was like, wow, they just... They just gave me his kid. They just yeah. sent me home with his kid. Yeah. What the hell's the matter with a, you people? I'm a human being. Yeah. Like, oh, what the what the hell do I do now? Yeah. I was so scared. I didn't sleep at all that night because I was just so I was ready for him to cry. I was ready for like whatever, just you know, high alert. I think maybe it took about four days to finally like transition to groove and yeah, yeah. And then I mean, I uh, I fell in love with him immediately, of course, and he was. He already had such a personality as an infant. At least I, I felt he did. Yeah. You know. And um, well, if you're expecting him to cry, he's not. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Chill as an infant, and even more chill as a kid, as you know, yeah. the young man he's becoming now. But um, when she was pregnant, if I can take a step back, while she was pregnant, I had I had heard a bunch of stuff about like playing music while the baby's in there, yeah. reading to them because they get used to your voice. So I I'm an avid reader. 
And I would just, like, while she was laying in bed, I would scoot down and I would lay with my face next to her belly. And I was reading Harry Potter at the time because those books had just come out, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I was on, like, the second or third book because it had just come out. Mm -hmm. And I would just read it out loud, you know? Whatever I read that night, I would read out loud to him and I would talk to him all the time. I made compilation tapes and I would put the headphones on her belly and Mm -hmm. let him listen to music. Um... But, uh, so, uh, we had him and, and then it's just really a matter of getting used to getting in the groove. Mm -hmm. Um, there was my first like real scare was when I was bathing him Mm -hmm. and, um, babies, when they're first born, they don't know they can breathe through their nose. They just breathe through their mouth. Um, or no, wait, is it the opposite? It's, they don't know they can breathe through their mouth. They just breathe through their nose. Okay. So I was bathing him and he got water in his nose and he started to choke. And I I was flipping him around like he weighed nothing. Like I went into immediate, yeah. you know, like, yeah, and doing the You're CPR do in the, the back. C- yeah. And I'm like holding him in front of me like, cry, cry, cry. And he started crying. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> then, I, then I knew he was breathing and everything was okay. But yeah, that was like, like you get you get used to the fact that they're there and they're okay, but at the same time, you realize just how like, just how flimsy mm-hmm. we're all. We're all really flimsy. We're all walking yeah. on a very flimsy. Yeah. And um, like you, you understand like, it, it, it. I imagine. I imagine that it's it's one of those things where like you, not only you're holding everything in the world that matters to you yeah. in your hands. But you know they're completely dependent on you, mm-hmm. and it's the it's the beginning it's the beginning of a life. But it's like you you realize how like fragile we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> like how 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 thin the the line is. Yeah, and it's yeah. So so you know how how does how does Jacob now? He's sixteen. He'll be seventeen in March. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wow. Oh my gosh! And you had him, you you had him when when you had him when you were uh, my age. Now is what is what I it, yeah. Oh, I'm just thinking about if I had a kid now. <laughs> um, I, I think so. So one thing you said that that really connected with me is like you're talking. I, I've been meaning to, but like. Uh, the connection thing we were talking about. I'm gonna go back a little bit. The connection thing with God, like you're talking about the okay. spirituality, craving the spirituality. Mm-hmm. I, we had a similar upbringing in that regard. Like we, I'm realizing in this moment how very similar we are in terms of like our home lives because mm-hmm. my my father is I love him, but he's and we're not we're not like super close, but like he has worked so hard. Like we, I have this respect for him and I, I would do anything for that man as I know he would do for me. Sure. Um, but like we, we were very Catholic, like super Catholic grew up in the church and there came a point where there came a point where I like, I like eat was the youngest like catechism teacher at my, like I was 17 and I'm not even 18 yet. And I like on my 18th birthday, this is a great story. I don't think I've told this on my 18th birthday. Uh, the priest at 
the church we were going to at the time, the priest was like, you know, it's the responsibility of every Catholic man to be in some period of discernment whether or not they want to go into the priesthood. And I see all these qualities in you. I really think you should go to this, like, Explorer Day. So on my 18th birthday... Yeah, you too? I, I was in the seminary for a week. Oh, my god! But, but I'm sorry to interrupt your story. Please. No, uh, we're going to get to yeah. that. We're going to get to that in a minute. But, like, so 18, 18 years... Like, I turned 18, and that day I was in... I was, like... I went to the sales center at USD. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> there, the, the priest that ran everything, he was the, in his previous life, he was an accountant. So he was the accountant for the diocese, <laughs> which at that time, this was when, uh, this was when they were starting to uh, to settle the lawsuits against the Diocese of San Diego. So as the accountant for the diocese, like in my mind, I'm like the, the things that he is probably doing. Yeah. Like, so he's probably just happy to not be dealing with numbers. And, and there were other guys there. And I remember, I remember thinking like, you know, if we, if we can, if I can make a book, like bookmark all the moments where like, yep, gay, 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 gay. <laughs> like, this is one of those moments where we're there and I'm just thinking like, wow, some of these seminarians are really hot. Like, <laughs> like we, I'm just like, I was like, no, don't, don't ask the seminarians out. Like we're talking about the guys who are giving us the tour, you know, like the guys who are there to give us the tour yeah. of the seminary, like the people who have, who are there, like they're in their first, their second year of the program. And then. And then I remember thinking about how gay some of the other guys were there that were like there to be there during the day. Sure. And I was just like, I was like, queen. Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. and then we had, we did mass. We, it was funny. They took us into their kitchen and they had, um, they opened up one of the cabinets and there were like coffee mugs and an I love Jesus, I heart Jesus shot glass. And I was like, Hey, you know what? You gotta, <laughs> I mean, you, you gotta get through somehow. Sure. Um, but after that, and I remember after that day, my parents took me to my parents took me to dinner at Saquon, and because I was eighteen, so they took me to dinner at Saquon, and they asked me how it was, and I'm just like, no, it's not for me. And then you know, I wouldn't come out till you know I was 26, but <laughs> but it was just like, yeah, no, like <laughs> definitely, definitely not like. And they like you know they go around the room. Why are you here? And I'm like, well, I'm here because you know, Father Peter was like, you gotta go. And I was like, sure, why not? I mean, you know, what's what uh, when the where we grew up, at least you know, in our culture, it's just like you know, the priest asks you to do something fairly simple. You should do it because sure. you know what's the point. But you were a seminarian for your week. You were in the seminary well, for a week. I I wasn't officially. I went for a vocations retreat. Okay, and. We were there for five days, and by the end of it, if they had, if it was as easy as like, here, sign your name, I would have, I would have totally done it. The problem is, I came home mm. and I started hanging out with friends, and I realized, you know what? No, I like, I like girls. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to hang out with with girls. Um, but yeah, I was, I, I was totally down. I, I'm, I was trying to think like. What was the impetus? What made me 
go in the first place. I, I, it was that search. It was during yeah. all that period of just yeah. like, what the hell? What, 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 what is it? Yeah. What, what, what's the purpose? So, yeah. th- and that's that was that was the connection I was trying to make. So, we have a lot in common in that in that regard. Where I, I reached a point where I was the youngest catechist, and one of my students was asking me something, and I didn't know. I don't remember exactly what he asked me. Though I just remember that being like the moment where I was like, hmm, maybe. Maybe I need to start rethinking teaching. And then from that point on and starting college and learning more about learning more about the history, the Catholic Church as a historical institution mm-hmm. and learning more about that. And then going from there and then in fully embracing the feelings that I was experiencing and, mm-hmm. and the experiences that I wanted to experience and really listening to what, what teachings, you know, I'm doing air quotes, like teachings are telling me about the about people like me and who are born this way. And like, I think catechism, I think the catechism itself says that like the church recognizes that people are born homosexual, but like you shouldn't act on it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's the point? Like the part, one of the best things about being gay is actually being (laughs) gay. Like one of the best things about being anything is like actually like doing it is like the living, living it. And whether that's, you know, whether that's a sound of music, uh, sound of music, sing along, or, you know, having like relations with a man, like it's, I started to, I started, it was starting to pierce. Like I was started to sink a little bit and I already had my, I already had started like those disillusions that you were talking about. Like it almost the exact same thing. People sit in the front who have the most money. People sit in the back. Mm-hmm. The ones who really need it are the ones that are in the back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just, and I, I would get in the same way. Like I would be just so full with joy and fulfillment in being in these like spiritual places. And it's funny when you meet a lot, you meet a lot of like former Catholics in, or even current Catholics, but you need former Catholics in theater because there, there's a, there's a ceremony. There's, there's, yeah. a, there's a performance aspect to it and, um, a gravity of symbolism and sacred space. But, um, but yeah, like I, I was thinking about that. I'm like, I, to have, if I had like a child now, like, I don't even know. I, I, I can't even imagine. Like, I, I think I'd met a much react in the same way. Um, you know, like this is now like, this is my, like, I will dedicate myself to making yeah. sure that you're <clears throat> that to giving you what you need. But um, I, I, I thank you for sharing that with us because it was just, I, it, it, I always wonder how people, especially with a first child, um, the, how they feel in that moment when your life, when like literally the miracle of life and you're experiencing it. And then, you know, there's a little, little bits of you and, and, and another person that create this new life and bringing that to fruition. He's the first person I ever really fell in love with. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had told a bunch of people I love them, but I didn't really understand what that meant until I was holding that, mm-hmm. that baby, you know. And so, that's really he. I he's my first love. Mm-hmm. That's that's the truth. Yeah. Um. He changed my entire life. He made me a completely different man because I had to change. I, it took me a while. Like you know, fortunately I had my parents, and so, a lot of his early years, my parents very much stepped up and supported um especially since his mother and I divorced uh, divorced like just after he turned 1 so we were only married like just over a year not quite 2 years um the the one reason I really really wanted to get married is at that time in California fathers had no rights mm-hmm. to their kids 
and I wanted to have, I wanted to be a part of his life. I wanted to have a say in where he went to school, where, you know, yeah. what happened to him. And so we did it. We got married. Um, but like, you know, I got a lot of crap because my family and her family, very, very Catholic. And so we're all about like getting him baptized, this, this, this. And I was like, no. No, I I believe that is a personal choice. And when he grows up, if he finds God, however that may be, and he's like, guess what, Dad? I'm gonna I'm gonna be a Catholic. I'm gonna get baptized or whatever. Awesome. Do it. Yeah. I love you. I'll be there. Let me know when it is because that's a personal relationship, you know. Mm-hmm. And so whatever his personal relationship is, I respect. And will and always will. And so I got I got a lot of crap for oh, yeah. not for not getting him baptized. Told like that that lightning was going to strike me down. Yeah, yeah. Like horrible, horrible things were said. But I didn't care because it was my son. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I like I, I stood firm by my belief that that's a personal choice and that's his choice. But then like as he grew up, I always said that if he had any questions, feel free to ask. And he would ask me occasionally, and I would try my best to answer as like unopinionated as I could, but just like give facts and talk about the mythos because I had, I had read and studied all these different religions. And while I may not have been completely immersed in them, I knew enough about him to give an, enough of an overview that if he was really interested, he could go and do further yeah. investigation on his own. Or yeah. if he wanted further, I would, I would always say, you want me to find out more? I'll find yeah. out more. Break out um, your old books. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, we, we still kind of occasionally have talks about philosophy, but, you know, I, I, I still just sort of, that's his, that's his relationship, just like mine is my relationship. And um, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've always sort of landed on the Buddhist side. So that really, that philosophy, that, that whole thing is sort of, if I had to pick one, yeah. I would say I'm Buddhist. Yeah. But I don't really identify as one thing. I am a spiritual person who is intensely philosophical. I have no answers. I just believe what I believe. And I'm always willing to listen to what other people have to say. We have questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, now I want to, I want to talk about the present. We'll, we'll close a little bit on, on, on what you do now because it's, I feel like it's really cool and it's, it's, it's important. Okay. Um, so, uh, you you teach uh, technical theater. I do, and um, it was really awesome because you were talking about um, when you got the job when you were taking over the program to uh, start referring to your students as technical artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about your experience in technical the technical arts, and then what kind of you drew you to teaching and, and what you. Because I've 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 heard you talk a little bit about some of like your lesson plans about even like going as specific as these are the different tools this is where it's located so yeah. um, talk a little bit about that and then we'll um, my my history and how I got history to, yeah and then and 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 well, got to that um, I don't know when I was like five six years old I used to play around and act I was a clown you know and in my family not at school. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember my sister, I vividly remember my sister saying, I'm going to take you to Hollywood and I'm going to make you a star. And those words planted 
something deep in my brain where I spent my entire life believing I was destined for fame and fortune that that's where I, you know, I, I would act out being in that I was on talk shows and then I would be the, you know, all the dreams any actor or artist has. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I auditioned for everything I could and was a part of theater in, in any way I possibly could be. But my introduction to the art form was on the stage and it wasn't until I got to college that I started to realize that I didn't really... I enjoyed the act of um, creating a character, but I didn't enjoy the performances. Like, during rehearsals, I loved it. As soon as it was performances, I was bored out of my mind. I didn't I didn't like... I didn't need the attention from the audience. I didn't need... It, it was almost like all the fun stuff was over now, and now we just yeah, perform. Now we're just doing yeah. it. Yeah. So I turned my eye toward directing, and I... I mm-hmm during that time thought maybe I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I immersed myself in filmmaking and started watching all these, um, it was the, the beginning of the whole independent film movement when that word, those words first started to really mm-hmm. be a popular catchphrase. And that was where I learned about John Cassavetes and where I learned about Orson Welles. And I became obsessed with Orson Welles. Um, so I, I stopped acting and turned my sights towards directing. And it was actually that, that show I did in New York that ended up in two and a half month tour of Europe. When I came back to San Diego and I got kicked out and everything, it was at that time that I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm ready to start focusing on directing now. Mm-hmm. So I planted the seeds everywhere I could and I started directing. And my first directing gig was for the Fritz Theater. I did a late night uh, version of Christopher Durang's Titanic. Um, it was a lot of fun. There were a lot of mistakes I made because I was a first-time director, but I I really felt like, yeah, this is it. This is where I... I, I love to be a storyteller. Yeah. So my um, entrance into the world of technical theater was through directing because I ended up having to design my own sets. I ended up designing my own sound more often than not. Uh, so it got to the point where every time I was directing a show, I was also designing the set and doing all the other elements. And eventually, um, actually, because of being a father and having that kind of a schedule, not not really being willing to give up time with him to go like show to show to show to show, yeah. I dropped out and, and kind of took a break from theater for a while. Then I would go and I would direct a show and then take like a year off or two years off, then direct a show. And I would try as much as I could to actually bring him. So he grew up in a theater from mm-hmm. when he was an infant. Like I was directing a show at onstage called bedside manners right after he was born. And I used to bring his little baby carrier to the theater. And there's always someone that wants to hang out with the baby, you know, yeah. <laughs> and there's always someone that's like, Oh, so cute. Let Can me. I hold him? Yeah. Yeah. Forever. <laughs> um, so, uh, through necessity, essentially, you know, um, I learned how to do those things. And, and also my father was a carpenter. Like he was really good at, 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 you know, home crafting and woodworking and all carpentry and stuff. So I learned how to do a lot of that stuff from him. Mm-hmm. And he would actually come and help me build sets because I would have an idea of something I wanted to have happen, but I wouldn't know the tricks to ha- to make it. So I'd be like, Dad, I want this to do this. How do I do it? He's like, oh, just do it like this. Put sliders underneath and you're gold. Um, then eventually, for whatever reason, um, I stopped getting cast in stuff and I stopped getting directing gigs but I was still able to get jobs doing technical stuff Mm -hmm. and um, 
that's that's where I, I, I did it professionally. I worked at the rep uh, for an entire season in electrics, which is lighting. Mm-hmm. I worked at the Old Globe in electrics. Um, I worked at La Jolla Playhouse as a scenic carpenter for Hunchback Notre Dame, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, I have the soundtrack. I can only imagine, like, and some of the pictures that you posted where, you know, in the shop. Yeah. I can only imagine how just breathtaking it must have been. It was beautiful. It was the biggest and heaviest set I've ever worked on. Like every column that you saw mm-hmm. had had steel inside of it. So it was a steel column that was skinned in wood that was then like carved and painted to make it look like wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a very intensive set, but I loved it. I loved, you know, like I showed up at a theater every day and I got to, by the end of the day, I had made something that wasn't there before and I liked that kind of. So... I got this job purely by happenstance. It, funnily enough, weird story. This is kind of a reoccurring theme in my life. I'm a very lucky man. Um, I was feeling really frustrated and kind of stressed out because I couldn't find a job that was consistent. I was working mm-hmm. all the time at theaters, you know, going from job to job, but nothing that was consistent and nothing that was giving me like insurance or yeah, uh, yeah a future, you know? So Kristen and I were talking mm-hmm. and it was November and she's like, if you could do anything, what would it be? And I, without even thinking, said teaching because my whole life I've wanted to be either one of two things, rich and famous or a teacher. That was pretty much it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I, either of those two things, I could die a happy man. But, um, I still have a long way to go in getting my degree and trying to like be a single dad and work and go to college. Like I know there's people who can do it, but I, I had a hard time. So I, because like the way my brain works and just being bad at organization and everything, if I took one class, Mm -hmm. I'd rock it because I could spend my time just doing homework for the class, studying what I need to for that class. But then that's like chipping away one class a semester yeah. Well, I'm 80, I get my degree. So I kind of lost heart. Mm-hmm. So um, she asked, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, teach. I would, I would love to be a teacher. But, you know, and then the same story I just told you. A month later, I get this random phone call saying, hey, uh, this is my boss. Yeah. From, uh, <laughs> from where you work. From where I work. And we need somebody as an interim to fill in for the current instructor who's out on medical leave and we don't know when he's coming back probably in a month or so so we'd love to talk your name was given to us by someone someone i'd worked with at the rep Mm -hmm. who was roommates with another teacher at the school that when that teacher came home and was like do you know anybody who could possibly fill in for this and without a a moment's pause Mm -hmm. that she was like oh mike call mike so I was still working at the Playhouse at the time, and I talked to this guy about the schedule, and he's like, well, it's it's Monday at this time in the afternoon, and Tuesday at this time, and Wednesday at this time. And I'm like, wow, that sounds like a pain in the ass. You know, I'd, I'd have to start at 8 at the Playhouse and then leave midday at lunch to go to this place, and I don't know. So I started talking myself out of it, and eventually I thought, I'll just go down and I'll talk to him. So I go down, I meet him, and he's telling me about the job, and everything he's telling me about the job is like, he got through talking, and I'm like, you just described my dream job. Like, (laughs) everything you just said sounds awesome. 
And, and I told him, I said, you know, I've always wanted to be a teacher, but I'm miles away from my degree. So, you know, he goes, well, you could be a teacher through CTE, their career technical education. You can, mm -hmm. If you have enough time doing what it is you're teaching, you're considered an expert and therefore you can teach it. And so a whole world of possibilities opened up in that one moment. So he gave me, they offered me the position, the interim position, and school was to start on January 5th. We make our way through the Christmas holidays. January 5th arrives. I show up. He gives me, he gives me a tour, gives me the keys to my office. And he tells, I hear him telling someone else that the guy who had the position before me has resigned. So I, I'm going into this that day thinking I'm going to be here like two weeks to a month. And I, you know, like you don't want anything bad to happen to someone but at the same time i was thinking maybe he'll quit maybe i'll get yeah. to stay you know like maybe i don't they'll like me i don't i don't wish you any ill but yeah man and it would so, be so nice if this worked out yeah and so like without even saying any anything really i had just shown up met him he took me to the office and then he's tell he's telling someone else that this dude resigned at that time that job became mine to lose Mm -hmm. Because they could invite other people to interview, but I would be the one actually doing it. And if I lost, if they hired someone else, it's because I just suck, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I had a month to hang out with these kids who had gotten used to this other dude and were looking at me like, who are you yeah. again? Um, it's Sister Act 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I... Um, I interviewed for the job and they obviously hired me and now um, a year and a half later, mm -hmm. I'm still doing what I'm, – I'm at my dream job. I'm exactly That's where awesome. every road has led me to this place and I am so, so grateful. And it's just – it's funny. I can't help but laugh that a month prior to that phone call, I was – I put it out to the universe. Well, if you could do anything, what would you do? Teach. Here mm -hmm. I am teaching. And here you are. Now, I, so uh, fans of the show, <laughs> all, all five of them, fans of the show have, I know that like a lot of people come on this, this podcast and they're performers, they're actors, they're, they are, they're people who like to be on stage to create. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I've been wanting to get you on because they're, the other aspect of creating something for stage is, re requires a technical aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Like... The whole Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the technical things that they're probably going to be doing on stage as like I'm I'm like barely through the first 20 pages of the script. And I'm just thinking like I can only imagine how much fun the technical the designers are having with this show just mm -hmm. because they're going to create things that people have never seen before on, on stage. Right. And I... I want you to, if you could speak a little bit to like the the technical aspect of of uh, creating something for theater and and that kind of life. I, we joked a little bit that if you want to make money in the theater, you want to be a technical artist. Yeah. Um, well, it's 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 weird because I I definitely enjoy the acting part. I, I actually miss it because it's mm -hmm. been so long since I've done anything. I'm really feeling this craving to be on stage again. And then like, uh, I also have a band, I'm a musician, a songwriter, and we, um, I miss playing with them too, because I, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I, but it, it's, it's weird. It's like, 
it, it's one of the things that I related to Orson Welles. There's this, I, I'll come back to your question. I yes, promise. yes, no, absolutely, um, go. But there's this interview with Orson Welles where he talks about being a kid and how he would he would paint a picture and people would say, oh, I've never seen such painting. He would play violin and people would be like, oh, I never heard such violin. And he would just like heaped with praise upon praise upon praise. But then like he, he thought there's no limit to what I can do. But yet look at what happened with his career, you know. And I feel very much the same. It's like I, I've done these things in my life that have received so like a lot of praise and yet have gone absolutely nowhere. The one thing that's been consistent and has actually provided me with any sort of forward momentum has been the technical theater part, being, being able to be a technical artist. Mm-hmm. And so for me... Um, when I'm invited to be a part of like projection design or sound design or um, scenic design, I approach theater very much like a movie. I, I see, because I don't know what the director, I, I don't really know until I see what the director's done, what's mm-hmm. going to be on that stage. So I have to try to imagine what's going to be on that stage and how it's going to play out and what it's going to look like. And so I envision... Um, the set or the projections, um, not so much sound, but you know, like mm-hmm. I, but even with sound, I approach it very much like a film. If it's a drama and there's music, incidental music that plays, I try to score it much like a movie. Um, and so this year, for example, we have Greece, uh, and uh, the last show of the year is Cabaret. And even though it's like miles down the road, I approached the director today with my scenic design for Cabaret because I'm so excited about it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I love about the theater is that you don't have to keep it to the stage. The theater itself is an environment. And um, I have I feel like all of the shows at the school so far have been like proscenium and back, proscenium and back. Like this is where the set is. We close the curtain and the set's back there. Maybe there's a couple scenic pieces up front, but really not much. And I'm like, no, let's bring it all out. Let's like put projectors in the catwalks and project on the walls. Let's, you know, I'm for, for, um, for Greece, I'm building a whole proscenium facing to go in front of the proscenium art. So that, like as people walk in, mm-hmm. the entire theater is going to look like a, a Wurlitzer jukebox. That's awesome. You know, because to me, when I think of Greece. It's about the music. It's not about the story. It's yeah. it's a love letter to the music from that era. Yeah. And so they wrote this story that kind of fits in with the whole like rock and roll. Yeah. But it's but it's about the music. Greece is about the music. And so to me, yeah. the 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 temple of music is a Wurlitzer jukebox. You know, that if there's a church for music, it's a whirl it looks like a Wurlitzer. Yeah. And um, so the the staging is all gonna is gonna be records that are stacked and, and platforms with the backdrop being uh, similar to the one that's in behind the in the background of the Wurlitzer, and then in front of the proscenium, we're building a whole facade that looks like that, and then some things along the apron as well. Um, but for cabaret, that's the one I can't wait to get to because I'm completely transforming the theater. We're taking out the whole front row. I I don't I don't know if I want to tell you, but but like <laughs> I kind of want to see it. We're so. doing all kind, and I I'm like I'm trying to make the stage and the set itself mm-hmm. just as much a character 
as yeah. as anyone else. And I, I was telling the director today, like, I want to do things like build an oleo, a, a curtain, mm-hmm. and I want it to look like it's made. And I, I researched, like, fabrics and blankets and towels and materials of 1931 uh, Berlin and found a bunch and made, like, this whole, like, piecemeal thing. And I want to get a bunch of, like, uh, paint drop cloths and paint them and decorate them to mimic those and then sew it all together. And then on top of that, sew things like someone's dress or a piece of someone's pants, like the records, the, 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 um, curtain started to tear and all they had to repair it was someone's clothing. And that maybe one of the actresses could, could like look at that dress. Like she bought that dress and she was so excited to wear it. And now there it is on the curtain. So the audience doesn't ever have to know about it, but that actress, every time she sees that dress is like, Oh, you know, just, and I love stuff like that. The unknown, the stories that don't get told yeah. that help tell the main story, the yeah. whole history yeah. that exists outside the main storyline. That's where, yeah. that's the real gems. Like when you see a really good performance from someone, it's because that's someone who has found a truth in this character. They've, they've really, they know this person and odds are they've got this whole like, memory system i mean without getting too method with it they just there's 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 life beyond what you're seeing mm-hmm. and as the audience member you know oh man there's more of a story there and you're never going to know what it is but just knowing it's there helps make that moment so much richer yeah absolutely and, and so that's that's how i approach design and any aspect of theater i feel like it's all necessary that that's that's awesome because i feel if you have I love walking into places where you can autom- you you instantly feel that the the designers wanted to make the set its own character. Mm-hmm. Um, case in point, recently at uh, the Globe, uh, Rain, mm-hmm. where that that stage, um, that house that they had in the middle of the stage, yeah. was its own character. Like it 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 symbolized it symbolized whole relationships. Like it, it was at certain points when it moved, like it was just its own thing. And I, I love that. And I can't, I can't wait to see cabaret. Cause I, cool. I can only imagine, I, I can only imagine Were were they a little surprised? <laughs> she was totally blown away. Like yeah. the look on her face. I wish I could mimic it when I was like, I want to talk to you about cabaret. And she was like, we haven't even, we haven't even opened Greece. What the hell are you doing? You know? But I was like, I just, I'm really excited about what I told her was, I'm really excited about this design because I did mock-ups. I did whole visual mock-ups for her. But then I realized like, I don't want to go through all the work of making these if mm-hmm. she's not interested. Yeah. So I, sh- I was like, I need to talk to you about this now so that I know if I can run with it or not. Yeah. Because if you're like, no, then yeah. I'm going to drop it right now. So I showed her, I, I didn't even show her the set. I showed her the theater, like what the stage is going to look like with the oleo down. So she hasn't even seen past the proscenium. She's <laughs> she's just seen the apron up to the oleo, and she's already like, I'm in. So I can't wait to show her the rest of it. Oh, man. That's I, I'm intentionally trying to do my best to go under budget for these next two shows so that I can go over budget with Cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I've never seen Cabaret. Oh, okay. So... So it, I I would love to see it in your in in your design in the it's it's dark and it's really kind of shocking that we're doing it at a high school quite frankly but we the, they push the they push the envelope quite a bit last yeah. last year we did two shows that really were fairly controversial but at mm-hmm. the same time like it's a professional prep program so yeah. that's you know, you know the the theater I mean that's the kind of stuff you talk about yeah. 
So, you know, in, in, in wrapping things up, is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners that, um, things that you're doing in town, things that other people are doing in town to go see, um, things to plug? I always say, like, do you, um, your band, anything? Um, the band is Tiny Frank. We have a Reverb Nation page where both of our albums are available for download if you're interested. But really what I'd like to say is anyone anyone out there that is a theatrical artist that is in any way, what doesn't matter what, um, stage management, design, uh, costumes, lighting, whatever, if you're in any way involved in um, theater arts, please contact me. I'd love to have you come in and be a guest artist for my students because they, they learn from uh, hearing the stories of, of other people because everyone has unique stories and you will absolutely love these kids. They're great. They're, they're a pain in the ass, of course, <laughs> yeah. because they're people, but they're, they're awesome. And if you can come in, I would love to have you and I know they would love to hear from you. Awesome. We'll put, um, if it's all right with you, can we put your email in the, sure. in the show notes? So it'll be in the, in the show notes for this episode. Sure. Um, Mike, like, I, I, I was like sitting, I'm sitting here and you're describing things, you're describing pieces of your life. And I'm like, are you like looking into my soul? Because <laughs> I feel uh, there were, th- th- there were moments where I'm like, yes, like this is, this is like, we, we connect on a level, but like, I didn't realize how deep that level went because I, things that you're feeling, I'm definitely feeling. It's just, there's this steady stream of connection. So thank you. This is why I, this is why I do this. This is why I have this show is because I want to give, I want to, I want to record these moments, but also I, I love to give, um, friends who have led such really diverse lives a chance to like just tell stories. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me, man. I'm honored. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was my sincerest pleasure. And, um, I always like to let the guests have the last word. So if you would like to say good night to our, our listeners. Good night listeners. <laughs>